Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to King Pilled. I am Matt. The uh, the weird black box next to me is Cooper. Um, and if this is the first time that you are watching us, welcome. Uh, we are streaming on YouTube. We're streaming on Twitter. We're streaming on Facebook. Uh, you can follow us on any of those platforms. <laughs> any of those platforms uh, at Real King Pilled on Twitter. Uh, Cooper Brooks is at Cooper Brooks on Twitter. And uh, today we are joined by a very special guest. This, this conversation has been a long time of coming. I've been wanting to talk to this guy for a while. Uh, the Prudentialist, the frog himself, is here uh, to join us today. Welcome, sir. Very happy to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to another Matt, so it's always fun. Oh, nice. Yes, absolutely. Best name in the world. Gift of God. Yes. Uh, I, uh, yeah, shut up, Cooper. The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've seen you. I've seen your your streams with Oren McIntyre, and you are always your your um, when you decide to face fag with the rest of us. Your 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 presentation is impeccable. The the three piece suit, the tightly manicured mustache, and everything. So, in honor of you joining us today, I decided to dress up as well. Um, this is the <laughs> this is the outfit of my people. Hey, I have some things to say about uh, the whole aesthetic you got going on. I really dig it. It's kind of like you look like you remind me of like a saloon owner in the 1860s wild west or something it's really cool it's really cool but might i make a suggestion sure start smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey so you can get a little rasp <laughs> to your voice and you could really sell the whole thing oh uh, well <laughs> the problem is is that drinking is a little limited due to a kidney transplant but i'll tell you what man i smoking ain't a problem well it is a problem but i i miss smoking but i used to do it quite often <laughs> okay well i could just okay. put on the raspy affectation you know and just start looking at you like it's a 1990s uh, tombstone type deal, but you know we'll get yeah. there when the day comes. <laughs> Cooper was trying to 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 talk like me earlier, and I just laughed at him. <laughs> He's got his little Cooper squeaky voice, and he was. <laughs> well, someone someone commented before we went live. They said that the the thumbnail for the video looks like something from the Muppet Show out of the 1970s, where Kermit <laughs> talks to like a famous celebrity of the time. And so, you know, instead of the Muppet Show, sex and violence, it's the Muppet Show, right wing Twitter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had some guy reply to the stream we did yesterday. Uh, I streamed out on Twitter and some guy uh, quote tweeted it and said something about um, like how girly the, the, the presentation looked or something like that. And he was just mad about right wing podcasters talking about right wing things. Um, so I just retweeted what he said. I thought it was funny. Oh, it's, it's funny too. Cause I had a moment like that where I try really hard not to cross the podcasting world with my IRL church life, but I dropped off one of our 2024 like church calendars to a, a parishioner who was working on Sunday. And she was like, I don't want to, I know you don't like crossing that line between the, your online self and your church life. But my friends found you and geo streaming the digital archipelago on Twitter. And they were ranting and raving like, why are these two fascists on my timeline? And it's just like, <laughs> I wouldn't even call myself one of those things, but I'm glad that I managed to annoy one of your like liberal friends. <laughs> was it? Yeah, no, I, was it? Does like your does your parish? Do people like know that you 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 lead this double life? Uh, just not. I try to keep it to not make that happen, but unfortunately, uh, it, it's kind of crossed over now. Um, yeah, I, we have we have we have, a, we have an inquirer soon to be catechumen at my parish. Who, when he first started visiting, he was like, I recognize your voice. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> it is, it's the end of the world. <laughs> but it's, I wouldn't... It's, it's it's just it's a matter of time, I guess. But I mean, my yeah, I... knows who I am. So I mean, because that makes confession a lot easier. Yeah, like a maybe a month and a half ago or something like that. My uh, um, 
my priest, we did a reader service because my priest was sick or something like that. But uh, in Trapeza afterwards, I'm sitting down just chatting with uh, my deacon. He's like, oh, by the way, I like uh, I like the stream you and Matt did the other day. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's kind of inevitable, I think. So you just have to, to embrace it when it comes. The stream in particular that he was talking about, like we were not producing this with the expectation that clergy would be listening to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we were, it was... I, it was very rated R for a variety of reasons. And uh, and then we found out that he's actually been listening to us for a long time, and he listens to Buck Johnson. And um, so I actually attend the same parish as Buck Johnson. I never got the... the my, my priest knew who I was before I ever went to the church. Oh, uh, okay. So I never got the, the, the ability to be, to be... To maintain any sort of anonymity or even pseudonymity. I just kind of had to lean into it. Um, but uh, uh, so what... I guess the first question we would ask you is, what's your social security number? Oh, well, I, I, I'm an older man, so, you know, just one, 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 <laughs> one, 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 two. <laughs> okay, I hope somebody was writing that down. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, real question, though, like, so you obviously you're, you're, you're orthodox as well, but you're also a, a, a relatively prominent figure among our, our guys on Twitter, the right wing, whatever. I don't know. I, I, we know who we're talking about. When we talk about it. we don't need to give them some sort of demeaning name. Yeah, this, this um, thing of ours. Yeah. Yes, yes. What, uh, what's your, like, so what's your background without doxing yourself too much, obviously, what, how did you get to this point? Well, I was raised in sort of a very, uh, I guess, Republican friendly household. I I grew up as an army brat. So I, I meet the literal non, uh, racialized connotation of the word rootless cosmopolitan because I moved around like every three years due to my dad's army job. And so I grew up during the war on terror. Uh, so my entire like young life was understanding that like team Republican slash team George W. Bush were the good guys and that team Democrat was not in my best interest. And then you, you grow up in the Obama years and soon to be the Trump years uh, when you're in college to recognize that everything that you were sold on as a, as a young adult about the world and uh, how things are supposed to go was sort of a lie to some extent. And then also the other guys are equally liars and equally awful. So it's been trying, I guess, to deconstruct my own neoconservative-esque George W. Bush social conservatism, you know, compassionate conservatism upbringing. And so I, I got involved naturally in Republican politics when I was in high school and college. And I, I turned 18 when I was in high school. And so I was, I, I had this deep sense of sort of like civic nationalism of belief that, you know, the Constitution is sacred, uh, voting is a sacred thing. You know, because I was raised to believe that, you know, you watch your dad do things like, you know, to swear an oath to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic, like that holds a special kind of value in your heart. And then you realize no one believes that around you at all whatsoever. And the voter participation is low as can be. No one cares. Everyone writes off everything. And the more you get invested in the game and in politics, you, you find out that there are like 20 other guys that have the same beliefs as you. And they're all equally heartbroken when they realize the game is about knife fighting and screwing each other over in dark alleys to ensure you're the one that gets hired for this internship or hired for this staffer's office and nothing like that. So from there, uh, I think Trump kind of radicalized everything. Like when he was running for office in 2016, I was thinking, well, you know, the more moderate factions of the party could maybe like make this work in some fashion as he became the front runner. And then quickly uh, throughout his administration, I realized that all the things that he wanted to get done were happening by executive authority and he had to sacrifice his agenda for tax cuts and things like that. And it was soon this quick realization that maybe the world of like Frank S. Meyer and and the National Review was a bunch of crock of crap. And so you start reading a lot of philosophers and I read a lot of comm theory in, in college 
And I, I found that stuff to be particularly interesting, how communication shapes our politics. And But my, my degree is in inter, uh, political science, international relations, and U.S. history. So I double major, focused on the Constitutional Convention. So I, I deep love for American history, deep love for how the world works and in international relations and empire. And I guess throughout the rest of my years in starting this, you know, you grow up in college as, as a lot of white guys. You just trying to grow up innately political. And you start listening to people on the internet. Everyone's got their like, oh, who did you start listening to story? And this is the one thing that like the left was definitely right about, that there was a pipeline with like YouTube and Twitter and oh, yeah. the algorithm. Like they were 100% right on that. That's why they had to <laughs> do the whole adpocalypse thing in 2017. And it was uh, it was great because then you got to be exposed to people like Carl Benjamin and Dave the Distributist and the rest. And uh, I moved from in 2019 to where I live now, which is in an undisclosed location in the middle of nowhere, Texas. But uh, from there, uh, three things kind of happened at once. I moved to small town, rural America, where I realized people still cared about their kids' education. They knew their school board personally. They still went to church on Sundays. They took care of each other if a storm went through. I, you know, noticed that these people were you know, genuinely invest in their community, which was something I never grew up experiencing. Because uh, at the time, in a previous more secular life, I had a I had a girlfriend living with me, and she was like, well, "Why don't we talk to the neighbors?" And I was like, "Your neighbors don't even speak the same language as you. <laughs> like, you need to understand that you don't live in a high trust society anymore." And from so that helped a lot too. I think was my own personal health uh, crisis. I had I had kidney failure, which led to dialysis, and spent a lot more time podcasting when you're sitting on a dialysis chair for four hours. And then I had a bunch of free time because then COVID hit and I bought all the stuff to make a, a, a gaming PC. I was going to do what all the other boring white guys on YouTube do. They just make video review essays of their favorite games. And then I was listening to these people argue on on strategy. It was like Dave, the distributist, academic agent and Don the pleb arguing about political approaches. And I was like, oh, I can do that because I'd always been asked in polite liberal company to give the polite milk toast conservative opinion that's slightly different from the libs. So I, I made a I made a Twitter account, made a YouTube channel, and God has blessed me with uh, growth, audience, and the opportunity to talk to people like you guys. Ah, I was wondering when you were going to end. Um, <laughs> well, like semi agog, I'm not a terse man. Sorry, Cooper. <laughs> yeah, I'm just You're in good company. <laughs> the real question, or you know, kind of working with that. Ah. What's your favorite Dark Souls game? Oh boy, uh, probably Dark Souls Three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good choice. Well, it's it's got the nice level design of Dark Souls One to some extent, but it has the speed of Bloodborne. It all works out great. Right, right, right. Yeah, that was my introduction as well. <laughs> Anywho, good so question, though, you... Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> I don't add much. <laughs> Well, it's 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 the it's the video game question. It's those are the important questions. I feel like it's like a physiognomy check. A man's taste in video games is a good way to get a gauge on his views. Mm -hmm. Well, I was uh, after you got done with your uh, monologue, I was actually going to call you a nerd. But then I was, you know, well, then you'd be right about to ask him about Dark Souls. Well, then you'd be right. <laughs> OK. All right. All right. I'm a nerd. That's OK. After Cooper listened to your conversation yes, or yesterday, he listened to the conversation that you had with Dimes and um, first of all, he said he sent it to me and he said, you need to listen to this. This is this is like this is what we've been talking about. These guys, these are our guys. And uh, the second thing that he told me was uh, he said something to me about Dark Souls, that he was he was uh, excited that you'd you, you'd mentioned Dark Souls and, and he wanted to talk to you about Dark Souls. <laughs> Works for me. I can do both. It's not a big deal. So 
so what in the hell is going on? Like what, 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 what is, what is happening over the past couple of weeks? It seems like, uh, we're having years of history happen in days and everyone is, is debating about whether happening is happening or if the happening is not happening or if the happening is sort of semi happening, there's all kinds of crazy shit going on right now. What is, what is your take on it? I feel like everyone's take on it is entirely dependent on their own kind of secular eschatology. This is the big debate, I think, between like the the not happening gang versus happening gang on Twitter. Uh, I think Charles Haywood is a big proponent of this when he talks about like regime fragility. He did that whole like, I don't know, like 10,000 word essay about how weak the regime is a couple of years ago. And he was naming right wing Twitter anons in his essay about it. And I think it has a lot to do with how you view your timeline for, I guess, collapse or the maybe the scarier idea that things just don't collapse. They just progressively go down this gradient of things slowly getting shittier. And as for me, how I view it is, is that there is a regime that is acting like a Dutch boy at a dike and he's slowly running out of fingers and toes to plug his holes in. Like, and the water is probably beginning to leak in some places that he's not happy with because you look at, for instance, the war in Ukraine, which has been this like maybe like maybe right in his yeah, eyes. Yeah, something's hitting him in the eye. It's one of those unfortunate camera shots where the fluffer didn't get out of the way, but it, it does illustrate a. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I I just uh, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I'll I'll pay for that one later. I'm sure, but the the issue is I won't tell anyone. Well, you know, that's okay. Clergy listens to this. We're in real trouble now. Yeah, but. Uh, no, no. The re- Don't worry. The kids have jokes. The it's kids right. have jokes. We've informed we're, them before. We're funny. Don't worry. But no, the reason why. I, <laughs> yeah, guys, I'm funny. I, I swear. swear. I swear. No. So how it works is like the, take the war in Ukraine, for instance, the sort of long overarching foreign policy initiative to like keep one Russia and Germany sort of separated. That's why you have a lot of interest in Poland and Ukraine. Two, you have uh, some people in the State Department with an ethnic animus against this region. Three, you wanted a more Western block that has expanded most of the former soviet territories to do so the war occurs well what happens in that part of the world well there are two semiconductor companies that work specifically for semiconductor grade neon which is necessary to make semiconductors roughly 50 percent of the world's semiconductor grade neon comes out of ukraine and a good chunk of wheat exports to the un world food program come out of russia and ukraine uh, that's why the black sea deal has been so important in this whole conflict to get things out of that area but so, oh, great. Now we have the neon problem. Well, what do we do? Well, we immediately pass in, in response to this, the, the USA Chips Act, and that'll hopefully help counter our balance with China. And we have all this conversation about the Davidson window. Well, what's the Davidson window? Well, it's this whole thing about China and Taiwan, and maybe we have to go to war with them by 2027. So we need to stock things up. Hopefully this war will end soon. And then the war hasn't ended soon. So now we have to move all this production back to the United States. And that becomes the the USA Competition Act. And so you're, you're just seeing one thing topple on top of another as the United States tries to maintain its presence a- abroad. And this is where you get the Nicolo Saldo point about Turbo America, that it doesn't matter whether or not America can do it. It's whether or not America is going to try and maintain its hegemony in the midst of these difficulties. So to me... You know, you're you're doing well abroad to some relative extent. If I if I were a, a, a USG apparatchik, I'd say that you know things could be better. But at home is where the the question happens. And Americans, I think, we're we're uniquely isolated from how the rest of the world is doing. I mean, we we get a cough, but the rest of the world gets the flu, and we we, we manage to pull out okay. And that to me seems to be the ongoing strategy of this regime: is just be the the least sick man in the uh, hospice. 
is, is that, you know, if, if we're okay and we can walk around and everyone else is bedridden, then the USG will do fine. This is how you get guys like Peter Zihan and their books, like the end of the world is just beginning where they're like, everything is going to hell in a handbasket, but don't worry. We can import infinity migrants and America will be okay. And it's like, Peter, come on. And then you see Peter Zihan's name. And I think of that Twitter account where it's like, here's what you'd look like if you were black and Chinese. And I feel like he'd be really disappointed. Like this guy isn't black or Chinese. He just has the name for it. And uh, <laughs> America's just in this position where domestically speaking, everything that even slightly cognizant, mentally functioning liberals from like 20 years ago or saw the writing on the wall. Like there's this good book by Philip Caforo. I think he wrote it in 2012 called uh, How Many is Too Many? The Progressive Case for Reducing Immigration to the United States. And all of his argumentation was basically around low social participation, a crisis of national identity, more interminority crime, and a huge climate problem with respects to agriculture as well as our trade across the southern border. And all those things got ignored because it was considered too right-wing by a lot of his critics who were on the left. But so now all those things are coming home to roost, and you have a regime that feels with a lot of hubris that it can just do whatever it wants domestically. And to some extent it has, but Everything that we've seen in the last week with respects to the U.S. border may say otherwise. Who, who knows? But I guess that's what's happening is, is that you have people constantly trying to put out one fire over the other. And there is a senile old man sitting on the Oval Office desk with flames around him, licking his ice cream, saying this is fine. <laughs> that paints the picture well. Yeah. One of the things we've talked about <clears throat> here uh, a decent amount is a uh, like a an analysis of the different generations and the way the, the each generation kind of seems to have a personality. And there's a really clear, like a really clear starting point with the, the birth of the boomer generation. Cause you know, really the, the boomers came into a world that was fundamentally different than it had been before. And their, their uh, coming of age corresponded with massive uh, increase in American prosperity, um, often at the expense of either the future or um, the rest of the people around the globe, uh, with spikes in technology. Uh, so they, they kind of, they were born into a world where all the promises of liberalism seemed to be like all the, the, the liberal dogmas seem to be being born out in real time. So they really have like a psychological posture that, uh, I've been referring to as like naive, naive boomer idealism. And it's kind of like the mentality that has, has ruled us for, for generations now. But at the same time, they came up through these institutions, a lot of these institutions that were, as, as Eric uh, Weinstein likes to call them, they have their embedded growth obligations, that the, the institution by, by its own nature has to keep, keep growing infinitely. But then they've, for a variety of reasons, they've managed to cement themselves at the top of all these institutions and then just gotten older and older and older without ever allowing for any type of circulation of power. So then the Gen X and millennial generations have been backing up behind them. But now it seems like there's a, as everything is kind of starting to break and come apart, it seems to be corresponding with a generational transition where the boomers are beginning to die off within, I think, seven or eight years, the youngest boomers will all be retirement eligible and uh, uh, mortality rates are dropping. So the, or, or sorry, the, uh, the, the, like the death age is the average death age is dropping. So we're going to see a pretty big uh, transition here where the, the boomer psychology itself is going to lose a lot of representatives. And the, the Gen X and Zoomer generations seem to have a lot in common in the way they see the world. They're much more, um, they don't, they're, they're naturally suspicious of institutions and they kind of have the punk 
uh, vibe punk right. aesthetic with them. What? How much? How much do you have? You have you been looking at this? How much do you do you think this bears? Uh, I don't know, watching and tracking over the next decade or so as we see the boomers start dying off. I don't know how much of our our boomer hate might just be that inherited millennial disposition towards authority because so much of the social change that the boomers became of age of and were socially uh, affected by, whether that be the, uh, the hippies, the new left, social rights or social uh, progress with respects to civil rights movements and et cetera, a lot of that did come from silent generation or even older uh, managerial classes and the judiciary. And they inherited a world very similar to us of radical transformation of the old order and, and to do so. So, I mean, I don't, it's not that I don't have that like knee jerk, like, man, those boomers, I'm going to get them one day. Like the day of the pillow comes for you. But also I know <laughs> that a lot of the people who are to blame and are responsible are long since dead. And like us, they are our children of the ashes. Now, the thing that you can definitely fault them for uh, would be the the idea that their level of prosperity was going to last forever. That right. whole infinite right. growth thing is definitely a problem. And you can see that writing on the wall for even people like Mark Andreessen's uh, techno optimist manifesto. Like there is this like underlying, I, I don't want to call it boomer, but it does have this like optimistic, like 19, like 80s American mentality of like, we're all 30 somethings, you know, for like that old TV show where we're all going to like make it and we're all going to retire. We're all going to have technology escape us. It has that, optimism in Russia's song like the the new world man but they like they try and just ignore all the parts that we have the hubris the poison the the youthful arrogance to just throw the world away and to a large extent we have thrown the world away for the the future because there has been no effective resistance over the course of the last 60 to you know 70 years over these changes i i was recently my youtube algorithm's kind of been screwed over because i've been listening to a lot of old norm mcdonald bits and so my youtube algorithm is just showing me old tonight show clips with johnny carson and he interviewed ronald reagan back in 1976 and the things that ronald reagan in 1976 as he was trying to challenge president ford were over things like the size of the bureaucracy of government because they would be a intransigent voter block that would always vote for like the side of government the side of democrats and uh national defense as well as making sure that we don't surrender our capabilities to produce at home in terms of manufacturing. And it was like this really like weird black pilling moment where you're like, oh man, we've been talking about the same problems since 1976 from like mainstream Republican politicians. And we haven't gotten anything done. Uh, to some extent we have, right? But it's a, it certainly does illustrate that this has been a, an intergenerational problem and I and I think you you guys have talked about generations a lot, you two especially. And I think that you guys have come to a very similar observation where a lot of younger younger millennial Zoomer uh, conservatives will be talking about things like from Pat Buchanan, or they'll talk about Richard Nixon, and they're talking about people that they have no historical memory or connection to. And they're like, "Well, we can do what they did, and we can you know reinvigorate and and do all, and all that we can." And it's just like, yeah, but we're how many years too late or like the story is completely different. It's the same way that the National Review is like, I want someone to win an election like Ron Reagan. And it's just like, well, I don't think the National Review is ever going to say race is real. So good luck with that, like argument with voter demographics. But OK. And, and so it just becomes this disaster where there's also no sort of cohesion of, of peoples. And this is something that the boomers do have some blame for because there is no sort of respect for their progeny like they, they don't seem to have this value for their posterity 
which yeah. it blows my mind because like my, my, my parents are Gen X and I can ask them like what their world was like growing up. And I can even talk to my grandmother who's technically silent generation and ask her about what her world was like. And they do care about the future and they do care about their kids and they're very worried about where the world is going. And that is something you don't see a lot on the professional level. Uh, this is something that I have, a, I have a debate friend of mine from college and he works at Raytheon now and he's like, He's, he's in his he's early 30s and he's like a manager where he's at a junior level manager. But he's just like the average age of everyone I work with is late 50s, early 60s. There's no one passing this technical data around. Like, I don't know how we're going to stay afloat or innovate years from now. And now we're, we're inheriting this great debt, as TK says in chat, not just of like financial debt. But I mean, like a cultural debt where there's nothing to pass along except manufactured narratives of leftist historiography. We have no technical information that we can pass around. I mean, this is why Battle Beagle is so depressing to follow on Twitter because they'll like share articles like we can't like update the Minuteman three missile anymore. And you're like, oh, no, that's like a national deterrent for nuclear weapons. And we can't do that. And you get really upset realizing that we were once an empire you know, it's like the whole Morlocks and Alloy thing from the time machine. Like we were once an empire of Morlocks who could create all sorts of things and innovate and maintain the world. And now it's a bunch of spiritual Eloy that don't know how to maintain anything and are all fumbling in the dark, demanding that these boomers and these older people fix things. And they realize that, oh, they're all dead. What do we do now? Hmm. Important question number flat earth or globe earth <laughs> I, I i like trapezoid earth Ooh, okay i prefer the dodecahedron another hand touches the beacon <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> worst question so... any game ever <clears throat> so, so there's been a, oh, a unique phenomenon that we've been sort of tracking lately along these lines. So like recognizing the, the, like if there's anything that the Zoomer generation and, and, and large parts of the millennial generation, if there's anything that they are getting really jaded or cynical about, it is this sort of naive boomer idealism mindset, the kind of the default perspective of the liberal regime um, and the belief in all of the institutions and structures. There's, there's, they've kind of, there's a desperation among the, like the latter half of the millennials and the zoomers where some of them are like, they're, they're desperate to try to make the thing work. They want to, they want to get together and organize and sort of try to try to like prod the regime into doing the things that they want. But even, I mean, I have, I have sort of a double life myself where I have a, a, a sports Twitter account where I follow sports stuff. And I, I've kept those lives completely separate from each other. So I, I'm inundated with, I came from the West Coast, so I'm inundated with all the shit libs. Like they're all, you know, Seattle, LA, Bay Area, Portland, all of those people. I'm surrounded by them. And they are also, like on one hand, we sit here and we're like, well, these, these are the people who are, their, their ideology is the thing governing the regime. And yet they don't feel represented by it at all. They're, they're totally jaded and checked out of the system. They still kind of want to go through the motions of the, okay, well, you know, maybe an election, but it's becoming, it's starting to become really performative. They're very upset about the Biden administration. They don't, for different reasons, but they see the, see it as weak and corrupt and incompetent in the same way that we do. Uh, so like, is there a, as this begins happening, it seems like 
political will is draining from being able to support this type of system, this type of regime. And we're increasingly getting to the point where even if there was some sort of a big false flag attack or something like that, I don't see that being like a rallying point for the regime. If anything, it's just going to highlight just how much the competency crisis has really started to get into the White House and the different federal bureaucracies in it and everything. I mean, I even, I was thinking yesterday, who was it? Someone tweeted that the, because the Biden administration had told uh, Governor Abbott that he had until today to give the feds access to the to the border or else, essentially. <laughs> and someone pointed out, they said, this is this is nonsense because the, the like what the Supreme Court ruled on was this extremely narrow press, narrow thing. They were just saying the feds have the right to cut. It's not wrong if the feds cut cut the border, the, 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 the wire at the border. It's not wrong if they do that. That's basically all the Supreme Court said. They didn't get into any more complex reasoning or whatever. And so there's no power behind that kind of a threat. And the, the question I have is, what are the odds that the key decision makers within the Biden White House are actually aware of this type of legal nuance? Have we gotten to the point where the people who are running the show, who are making these decisions, genuinely don't grok the difference between what the Supreme Court actually said and what the what everyone kind of assumes that the Supreme Court said? I think that it has a lot to do with the the media aspect of it too, because a lot of people are thinking that a case was heard before the court. Like there were oral mm -hmm. arguments that we can listen to. No, it was just a ruling on an injunction that they had waived from a lower court, which allows them as I think it was Aristophanes revenge. who had tweeted it out saying like, this is a uniquely very narrow yes, ruling. That's who it was. And, and there's no way that this just applies that, the feds can, it was just about the, it was just about the Constantino wires, just about the razor wire that they can put it down. It has nothing to do with anything else. And so, so far, I think the deadline was like 1 PM Eastern. So it's already passed us. And so far, the only thing I've seen happen today was Biden doing something about pausing um, liquid natural gas, which one really screws over Germany, but two also screws over Texas. Cause that's a big part of the economy as well. So uh, Texas is allowed to put up the wire and the feds were allowed to remove it. I mean, that, that was more or less what it came down to. Uh, and of course, since we've seen for the last several well, three years, uh, I think uh, Abbott's statement made it clear it was like over 6 million people have been allowed into the country illegally with catch and release. I mean, how does that not meet any basic definition where a majority of these people are military aged men? Uh, but the problem is, is that there's a, a big difference between old school style politicos who have been in the system for decades versus what seems to be people who just take us hegemony for granted. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's there. We no longer have statesmen like Henry Kissinger, Robert conquest or George Kennan around. You have people like, um, Oh gosh, what's that devil's name? Um, her name escapes me off the top of my head. Uh, but anyways, the one who's really big responsible for a lot of the Ukraine policy that we have in the area that uh, Colonel oh, McGregor uh, likes Newland. to crap on. Yeah, Victoria Newland. Yeah, Victoria yes. Newland. And we have just, appears to be just brain dead people at the helm, both literally and figuratively. And that's the scary thing is, is that there's no room for nuance anymore in, in this country. And I mean, that's because of partisan divides, but also because it's explicitly designed that way for all the, the purpose of a system is what it does discourse. 
you know, the purpose of the system for the media establishment is to make things as dumb as down as possible and as black as white. There is no room for gray. So even if you wanted to right the ship, you're still going to have half the country, more or less, hate anything you do, even if you were to get into the weeds and the nuance of the policy and be like, actually, that makes a lot of sense because there's no there's no room for that anymore. And so I think people just genuinely believe that this is like the setup for like Alex Garland's movie that's going to come out later this year and not that there are clear constitutional challenges to what's happening. And I, I think all the other governors of the Republican Governors Association are like are, are taking a big sigh of relief because they're like, oh, thank God, Greg Abbott didn't have to cuck on anything. And oh, thank God, Biden decided not to like do what we did during integration in the 50s and 60s. So so far, it's all worked out, but there are plenty of lawfare and you know, procedural manipulation of bureaucracy or taxes or the IRS or the Department of Energy that, you know, if Biden's uh, administration really wanted to, these executive heads of these departments could really make anyone's life worse. And I don't think we've seen the end of that at all, if anything, just the beginning. Yeah, there's, there seems to be a lot of, like, we get in our little circles on Twitter and we, we, um, just naturally, because the human brain is only capable of tracking like so many different perspectives and so many different people's faces, we we start uh, kind of just 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 lumping people into broad categories. And I think one of the categories that we've kind of lost sight of is sort of the average ordinary person who isn't a rabid liberal ideologue, but who also isn't like necessarily one of our guys. They're just sort of an ordinary, decent person who wants to see competent government and you know they're moderately educated and like there's there's a, a profound number of people out there who are like that and they don't want to if you come at them with the you know the neo-reactionary like you know the constitution is void throw it out we need you know private monarchy like that sort of thing they're gonna be like whoa bro like chill out this is you know things aren't that bad um, but they're they're not necessarily going to be a rabid lib. Like you know, it's not like you're going to beat them and you're going to get a a, a a Skittles person coming at you out of them. Um, and what I was thinking is like the competency crisis is really becoming a big deal to the point where the you're seeing moves like this being made by the Biden administration. That was, I mean, this is just straight up just an own goal. Like even if you even if you were trying to be an accelerationist or something uh, within the regime from a leftist or communist perspective, like this was, this is a completely hackneyed, bumbling, awkward, doofy way to go about it. They've just made themselves look, all, all they've done is they've stir up, stirred up sentiment against themselves while rallying very little sentiment toward themselves. It's just the same people continuing to support everything they do because they're going to support everything they do. But there's a, a, a growing number of people who are starting to just lose faith in the regime itself. They're not ideologically ready to jump on board with, with some kind of, uh, you know, radical accelerationist take, but they kind they just want stability. They just want comfort. They want things to work the way they're supposed to work. And I think this is part of the reason why, like on one hand, you see Trump is pretty clearly doesn't have the same energy that he used to. He doesn't, he isn't rallying people the same way that he did in 2016. But his support is almost as high or maybe even higher than it was then simply because the number of people who are like, I, I just want to see an adult. I just want to see competency. And he seems more competent than them. So whatever. What do you what do you think? Have you followed Vivek Ramaswamy in, the, in his rhetoric and his the way he's been 
sort of shoehorning him way his way into this campaign. Do you have any any thoughts or 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 you know, preconceptions about that? I really liked your talk that you guys had actually on that question, like who's running Trump or who's managing him, because Vivek Ramit, like Trump, doesn't let him speak for more than sixty seconds. And because I, I one that's an ego thing, right? Because Vivek, <laughs> right. Vivek is a good showman. What for for all the sort of um, currying favor and pandering that he does, like Vivek is a very good showman, despite the fact that you know he'll say whatever he needs to say to come out of his mouth. Because I, it was funny he did that. Uh, who was it? Like Anomaly? He did that interview with the the, the nuance bro guy, and you know he was trying really hard for like the 25, 30 minutes he had him to like peg him to what he said in that book he wrote woke ink or whatever and like woke ink vivek ramaswamy is moderate center like left compared to vivek destroy the fbi and the administrative state ramaswamy <laughs> yeah. uh, and so clearly like all politicians right they lie trust not in princes and the sons of men there is no salvation and, and I have to tell myself that every day when I look at political Twitter, I'm like, none of these people will save you. But, you know, mm -hmm. some of these people are, are not as bad as the other. And so I think for Vivek, he's just a good showman. And I think that, and I've said this elsewhere, that what his issue is, is the same thing that we've seen other commentators point out, is that there's this weird ethnic battle for the future for the Republican Party. Uh, because, you know, he called out on one of the debate stages for uh, Ronald McDaniel to resign as the head of the GOP chair for the RNC. And this isn't the first battle she had. She had that battle against Kamit Dillon, another woman uh, with subcontinental background. And, of course, this is for the push for more um, Hispanic voters in the area. So you have the Myra Flores woman in close in the Rio Grande Valley who, yes, the RGV swung for Trump in 2020, but, like, you know, a lot of people think she's sufficiently weak on immigration due to ethno-narcissistic reasoning. And so you're you're watching this battle between sort of, well, how do we win like the Hispanic vote, which has been this like Republican pipe dream for decades versus this up and coming disaffected with the system in the same way that a lot of uh, um, Jewish conservatives get really upset over affirmative action and, and racial quotas because they don't want to be counted as white. And they want to not be hurt by that system that they benefit from as it is and the status quo. And so the GOP is an institution itself, besides being beautiful losers and sometimes just ugly losers. <laughs> they are now having this weird battle where like everyone is fighting for a new manager of this party helm while explicitly just not caring about the issues that affect the majority of the voter base, which happens to be uh, white evangelical flyover state Americans. Hmm. Did you see the interview that he did uh, just recently with Andrew Schultz? I did not. I, I I saw you tweet about it where he referenced uh, James Burnham. So I mean that that's a good thing, I guess. I, I've I've cheekily called him to some extent H one B mold bug because he likes <laughs> right. to reference the the managerial uh, state and trying to destroy it a lot. So I I think he's just sort of like another disaffected Silicon Valley guy, which. I mean, so be it, right? Like, that is a powerful political faction. I mean, there are some people that melted down and lost their entire, like, Twitter credibility over assuming people took teal money. So, I mean, it, it's a valid concern. And I, I think that it's good that people are waking up to this. But it's always, like, I think for people who are on the outside, like you and I, like, we have that in, intrinsic skepticism when, like, hey, this like really wealthy guy with like shadowy ties to other people are saying the same things we are. And that raises two red flags in my brain. 
one, are we actually really being successful in the things that we do discursively? And then two, are the things I've been talking about discursively nothing more than like a planted idea or an op that I fell for or something like that? Because you want to be authentic and original and try and figure things out for yourselves and explore these ideas. But then you get really concerned, like, have I been propagating someone else's campaign or doing that, you know, unrestricted warfare stuff that the Chinese were talking about the 1990s. Like some people will be combatants in conflicts that they don't even know they're actual combatants of. And I feel like in America, we're already in that place because we are the most psyoped country on earth. And we're all trying to sift through the consequences of that. Hmm. Yeah, the 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 way that I've been, I guess, kind of thinking about and approaching this is is, I mean, three years ago, less than three years ago, maybe two years ago, the idea that somebody that you would have an extremely charismatic, uh, well connected billionaire who is basically like uh, like issuing NRX dogma from national level stages and going around and talking people and and essentially conveying them our worldview. I would have, I would have thought like, there's like no possible way I could see this happening in 10 to 20 years, but like right now having that happen. And so I've been going back and forth with myself. Is this, like you say, is this a, a, uh, um, am I getting pulled into a psyop here or is this, is this actually something significant? I mean, we should expect that the, the, uh, uh, the regime, I mean, we're at the time, everybody says we're at the time when regimes collapse, we're at the time when, uh, uh, historically throughout all of history, by the time you get to this point, you have these sorts of major issues going on. I mean, you've got a, you've got people who are openly uh, like civil war LARPing. They're openly talking about it. It's not even being suppressed. It's not being beaten back. It's, it's, it's openly. So like even the happening doesn't have to happen for there to be a happening, like a significant shift in people's psychology. And this would be the time that presumably given the circulation of elites and the, the the things that Pareto talked about, that eventually you would begin seeing a rising counter elite. The question, there's there's two separate questions there. Is this, are these counter elites good guys? Are they our guys? That would be one, one thing to debate. The other thing would be just, could these guys be our allies? Like they don't necessarily, I don't necessarily care what's going on in their head. I care what they're doing. And if they're doing things that will promote my interests for me or that provide me a platform or, or, or facilitate my interests in some way that I can proactively take advantage of, then whether or not he's actually my friend, whether or not he actually truly believes everything he's saying, whatever, I, I don't really care that much. I want to be able to put myself in a position where I can influence him and actually make him like, like maybe he's throwing stuff out and he's like, I want to see how this sticks. And if it sticks and people really rally around it, okay, great. Perfect. You know, now, now you have a vehicle. Now you have a vehicle that you can use to affect some sort of change. The, and the thing that has, has driven me crazy, you've probably heard me talk about this, is the naysayers, the immediate, the nothing's going to happen, bro, the doomsaying, the like, I don't see what the practical utility of that is. What, what's the usefulness in being the guy who goes out and says nothing's going to happen? I, I think that you guys talked about this with you and you and dimes were kind of talking about the, like, how do you port the digital space and the digital communities and the stuff we're doing digitally? How do you port this into meat space? How do you connect these, these sorts of things? And I think that ties in here. Like if you're just theory selling online and which is, and you're saying things that don't have an end, they don't have a call to action. They don't have a, a, 
a, a praxis or a telos or whatever, then you know, what, what are you doing? What, 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 what's being produced here? I know Cooper, you had some, you had some thoughts about tribalism and this kind of ties in with, with tribalism. So uh, go for it, man. This, this episode is pure protein. Um, well, I guess I'll go on a quick side quest that's related. So I'll bring it back around. But earlier today, I was uh, listening to an old conversation. I don't know how old, but I, I don't know when all this happened. I'm not very online. I just kind of, that's good for you. I get my updates. <laughs> I get my updates from Matt. Um, <laughs> And occasionally lurk on Twitter, but Zeter. Um, it was Oren McIntyre and Alex Cushetta talking about Sam Harris back when he was like all about like, uh, you know, I don't care if there is like dead babies and whatever on Hunter Biden's laptop. I wouldn't care. Something like that. And anyway, they're lambasting Sam Harris, which they should. However, I did think it was kind of interesting that There, Sam Harris was kind of right insofar as, you know, a couple years ago, screeching about Trump being an existential threat. In a way, he kind of was, at least to the that sort of liberal world order that Sam Harris occupies. Um, because Trump, that movement, that energy, MAGA, has kind of paved the way and tilled the field such that ideas that come out of our circles are starting to hit the mainstream and kind of related to that to jump into another idea and maybe we can tie all this into a further discussion on tribalism because you you and dimes uh in that episode the other day had some interesting things to say about this but uh backing up a second i was listening to that episode and Maybe about halfway or two thirds of the way through the episode, I kind of had a thought like, man, because you guys were talking, you were using all the names that are kind of exist in our sphere, you know, like Arist uh, Aristophanes and BAP and Nick Land, and you're talking about, and you're using all the jargon. And I was like, it's a tragedy. If any, <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, if any shit lib were listening to this conversation or even like, fucking my boomer con parents whatever they would have no idea what's going on <laughs> well that's like that, that's why it's, al this is it's almost like we speak an entirely different oh, but, language. but we do and, and to a point where that's, right this, you know bap likes to make the joke about like you go to wine bar and have tasteful banter with gf you are gay no you speak in like esoteric right-wing twitter talking points you're basically speaking right-wing polari on the internet so like functionally you are a homosexual on the internet <laughs> but uh, right right which is terrifying well this is why you need like the boomer whisperer right this is why like the orrin mcintyres of the world are so bloody mm -hmm. important because you need people who can actually explain these things that you're well, and, and Vivek, to, to some to some degree, what do you think about that sort of development where he's taking sort of talking points like he's got these all these sort of, uh, you know, maybe they're just dog whistles to us, but it seems that he's able to communicate them in a way that's palatable to the, the unwashed masses. Um, what do you think of this development? Maybe it's because I still like the idea of formalism and I should let that like rot yeah. and wither away. I just wish that he'd be yeah. a little more honest about who he is. Like I would have loved it at any point in time during the debate stage. And I'm very upset that no one had the balls to do it. The, when, when he does the whole thing, like, listen, you know, we're, we're all Americans. There are two genders. God is real. I wish someone asked Vivek, which God he believes in. 
Like, come on, <laughs> yeah. come on. It's the elephant man, isn't it? Like, come on, baby. Like, come on. You can tell me that. Like, you were part of a Jewish fraternity and you were a devout Hindu. Like, it's okay. But we get it. You have to court like white evangelicals, and they didn't buy into your shtick either. So, I mean, I'm glad that they've got that census still on them. But I, I think that the the point you make that we are speaking in jargon, we're speaking in technical terms. Like, yeah, you want whispers. And to, to go back to the point that even Matt was talking about is is that maybe you don't care what they are. And I feel like that was a big debate between, say, Yarvin's Dark Elves nonsense stuff, right? Because he is right. The, the elite tastes of the world are probably not going to match mine. But historically speaking, when you do have changes in belief, it is the elites that change first. And this is why when like Mosca and Pareto talk about it, they're cripping for Marx because they're crypto marxist to some extent because even marx talks about this that there will come a point in time of the of the proletariat rising up that some of the bourgeoisie will side with us and bring about the workers paradise and to some extent that just kind of all makes us marxist secretly to some extent we just don't want to admit it right we're all temporarily embarrassed like marxist revolutionaries we just want <laughs> things to be a little more trad and a little more right-wing maybe than we do this fake and gay world that we live in and with that mindset or even adopting that kind of uh, maybe just presupposition of the world that, you know, we do need elites to change. And I mean, historically speaking, I mean, this is how it worked with Christianity. Christianity, you know, rose in the cities first. It took care of the more populated areas first. And this is where, I mean, like the, the word pagan itself, it has more of a, oh, you're an outsider. You're not from the, the city. You're more from like the more pagan, uh, non-Christian countryside. And so that problem, I think, exists very clearly within our own sphere and frame. That leads us to be very distrustful of people that we can't for sure suss out as our guys. And again, I'm, I'm very skeptical that you know, I'm not going to get someone riding in a white horse that's going to pick up the crown from the mud and say, I am the new uh, dictator of America or so on and so forth. But I mean, if he comes, cool. I just hope he doesn't. Well, okay. If he, if he if he doesn't come if he doesn't come for me in my belief system and he lets me have a tangibly better way of life, I'm all for that. I just don't have. I I don't think we've seen anyone that commands that level of respect yet, or or not. I mean, Trump speaks to like the American id, right? Like he just speaks to the knee jerk subconscious of the United States, where like yeah. this is this is how things are going to be, like. You know, when Trump says we're going to bomb the shit out of him, like people like that. And, and I mean, like when he when he <laughs> when he tweeted out like the, the lowest pixelated image, you know, with the crappy compression of the American flag when they assassinated, you know, they killed Bonnie. <laughs> oh, boy. Right. Like it was a good time. And, you know, you want those things and you like those things because that's that sort of speaks to the American culture of what we have. And so whoever is going to to succeed and pick up these things they are going to need our they're, they're going to need this jargon because we're speaking about things that have been talked about for over a century we've looked back on the histories of social changes revolutions politics both european and american whoever does it though has to package it in a way that gets people on board with the idea of america and i, I unironically and i this might be spicy i don't know but I think if the GOP wants to succeed, it probably wants to do that quote unquote multiracial whiteness thing where like the things that you want to do improve the majority of the population of America, but also it lifts everyone else up too. Cause I mean, you look at the Rio Grande Valley exit polling from 2020 and it was things like immigration and the economy, like the two bread and butter issues that Trump ran on in 2016, as well as for reelection in 2020. 
whoever is managing Trump right now, whether it's the Project 2025 guys or it's the, uh, you know, even people like Vivek, like they, they kind of have, a, I think, a much better instinct to know what time it is. And that gives me hope. I If Trump gets reelected, cool. I, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic, highly skeptical for the rest of his term and whatever happens. But, you know, there is a there is sort of this crown in the gutter, I think, for the United States. It doesn't mean I need a king. I just need someone that's actually going to to fix things. Uh, and this is where I think Yarvin is wrong about FDR, because Yarvin did have people like Colonel Robert House and uh, others that were doing a lot of leaning in on him and taking advantage of his physical and mental faculties as well to get things done. And that leaves you a little more concerned about how things are going to go. But you, 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 Cooper is right. You need people who can whisper these things to people, but also whoever is going to be quote unquote, be on your side, they're probably not going to share your values, but the question for you then, right. And this is the whole thing about digital communities and meat spaces. How do you facilitate the survival of your ideas, your beliefs and your culture in an age where everything wants you to de to become atomized, deracinated, and be re-territorialized with very gay ideas. America yeah. has a unique advantage because we're like ground zero for that. I mean, there was a Pew Research Center poll on religion that came out in 2017, so like seven years ago, where like white American evangelicals have a stronger resistance to things like homosexuality and gay marriage than the wealthy Muslims that come into the United States. And this is where, as much as I don't like the man, Indian Bronson, he is right when he says to people, like, your kids will probably be trans. The problem is, is that, like, my kids won't be trans, but, like, the 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 Indian or the Muslim that comes in here on an H-1B visa or tries to, like, get a role at, like, the Department of Health and Human Services, their kids are going to be trans, and they're going to be pro-trans, and they'll try and trans my kid, and that is unacceptable. So things like no immigration, a moratorium, remigration, you know, getting all this stuff out of here in power uh, is much better than uh, what we have now. And so I, I, I'm, I'm emphatically for burning the system to the ground. That's why I voted for Trump in 2020. I was like, he's he's a bull in the China shop. That's great. Uh, and now I'm supportive of him in part because it seems like whoever's behind him, Project 2025, these Claremonters that have some uh, ideas, they may not be 100% with me, but they are closer to my values than so far anyone else I've seen. And I apologize for ranting so long. <laughs> yeah, dude, come on. You know, I wanted to... Um, I don't actually think I disagree with you, but just to play devil's advocate to push back on something you said like oh, an hour right. ago at the beginning of that rant. You're welcome. Um, do this you think... Speak, and I'm like, I'm not... Okay. I'm not nearly as much of a fanboy about Vivek as Matt is. He's kind of like God Emperor Vivek over there. And I don't really care about the guy. And this is um, how you treat the sixth house and the tribe unmourned? Yeah. Um, do you think that you, or maybe we, over in this side of Twitter, um, kind of... And like, okay, we go down the checklist, like we'll take someone like Vivek as an example. You know, he's uh, he's a Pajit and he's a pagan and he's this and this and that. Um, and he doesn't he doesn't check off all the boxes that represent me personally. Do you think this is just kind of an expression of our inner inner shit lib that's still kind of in there where it's like, oh, this guy doesn't represent me. Therefore, he's not my guy. And, you know, coming from these circles, you'd think that we would understand 
whoever our or whoever the guy is, maybe not our guy, whoever the guy is, you know, Red Caesar, whatever you want to call him. If he's going to rule, he's going to rule. And you just hope that he makes your life better. But like, this isn't democracy. He doesn't represent you. Do you understand my question? Yeah, like, are, are you just going to suck it up and accept the fact he's doing some good for you? Don't nitpick over things? Like, don't purity spiral? Right, right. Like, don't let... Exactly. Don't let the, the perfect I, be the enemy of the good. A, a, absolutely. I think that that's... There, there's validity to that claim. Like, if I can own a house, you know, if someone can make it possible that I can own a house in my lifetime, I'm going to be pretty happy. You know, and I, I kind of don't care if he... You know, he's got... Right, a, no, no, no. I, I, I elephant god or whatever. I, I, I 100% demon understand where you're coming from, right? Like, I, I do. And then you don't want a purity spiral. This is why, like, I, uh, for instance, a few months ago, or probably more than a few months ago now, I had uh, Jeremy Carl come on. He worked in the Trump administration in the Interior Department. He is, you know, he and I disagree on some things, but you want people like competent men who have executive experience and know how to get shit done that, oh, he's, like, a boomer that, like, agrees that, like, oh, Ronald Reagan did some good things. And, like, I had someone in my Twitter replies with an anime profile picture, and that's always, like, 50-50 that, like, they're super based or it can be, like, there's who knows what's underneath that. I just write them off immediately. Uh, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But, you know. Uh, no anime again. allowed in the real King Pill. Uh, uh, I'm, in, I'm inclined to agree. However, the he was just like, oh, this guy's a you know, freaking moron for thinking that like Reagan did something good. He's like a piece of shit president. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, do you really want to be pissing off the guy that knows what it's like to work in a, like a Republican white house? Like, what are you doing? I, so yep. yeah, Cooper, I do agree with you that we shouldn't purity spiral and piss off everybody. But on one <laughs> hand, like I, I, you have to, I think there's the, the, the I see the value of gatekeeping. I, I see the value of gatekeeping, but also I see the value of, understanding that some people may come from the outside that have the right perspective that can help you. But I don't want, and it, and it is maybe that personal like libtard in me that needs to die, yeah. right? Like just, just yeah. kill the, like, you know, let the cringe die inside of you. But you also know that they're deeply held personal convictions. Bury it under liquor. Well, <laughs> they're, they're deeply held personal convictions will be expressed in their policy. Like Trump for all intents and purposes yeah. is a New York libtard. But you yeah. know what? A New York libtard from like 30 years ago is considered a fascist by today's standards. So like, <laughs> yes, sir, I will vote for Rudy Giuliani. Like, yes, Mr. President, whatever you say, we're going to go bomb Soleimani, right? Like, okay. But like when I see someone like Vivek or I see something like that happening, I just know that it's there's two different cultures there. There's two different belief systems. There's two different there. And so, yeah, Vivek can do some good things, sure. But on one hand, I'm like, that guy is not me, and I don't think he represents Middle America or whatever. So maybe keep him on a tight leash, you know? Yeah, yeah. One thing we've thought we've talked about before is that uh, Christianity has has thrived under pagan emperors in pagan societies for a long time. There's been they've thrived peacefully and been on good terms with the empire, and it's like being ruled by pagans is not necessarily. It's not like I'm saying you should uh you should actively work to be ruled by pagans if there were alternatives but i mean i would say functionally uh, i would take a pagan who who talks like the vague we are pagan basically christian, yeah over a christian who talks like obama you know a, a oh christian. yeah um you mentioned formalism and one of the things so so like he mentioned I, i'm a, i'm i'm a big vivek stan 
Yeah, I'm like I would love it if Vivek were to like take like some oath of office or just like he's going to be like the chief of staff for Trump, and he just like gave a little like speech in front of like the 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 press White House press secretary stand or whatever, and he was like, "Listen, I I, I believe in some elephant god." But, you know, by that elephant god is my witness. I'm going to destroy the administrative state and I'm going to make life better for you. <laughs> yeah, I would bring be like, his yeah, idol yeah, yes, to sir, the Mr. White Ramis, House. Yes, like... sir, Mr. Ramaswamy. Like, let's do this. We're going to make it happen. I don't know. I, I just wish we had some, like, a Can we buy I love some it. incense? This is why I <laughs> yeah. love it when liberals are so, like, mask off. Because I'm like, finally, some refreshing conversation. And I don't have to speak in code. It's like that uh, copy post or whatever. It's like, I see through your dog whistles. And I'm like, I'm literally... Uh, <laughs> I'm literally so and so. It's like ah, it's like wow. You're really saying it on the timeline. It's like I'm openly like it's like it could be anything from a fascist to a communist. It's like I see through your dog whistles. I'm just like I just want I just like mask off open conversation. Like I want you know the administrative state to be like totally destroyed. I think that a lot of people who are in this country shouldn't be here to begin with, and that America could be a fundamentally better place if we had actual strong executive power that was being used for the benefit of the country. And if we're going to have an empire, run it like an effective empire and not this fake and gay uh, anti-colonialist. We're going to put a rainbow flag in every country like we're, we're better than that. We don't have to be. Um, instead, what we have is like very milk toast, homosexual, moral, therapeutic deism <laughs> yeah. that has basically enabled the worst of our society to just run rampant over it. And uh, it, it's bad for America and it's bad for the rest of the world. So, I mean... I'm also I'm not a total opposition to people like Vivek or, or, or Yarvin. They serve very good purpose and they serve as good jumping off points for ideas. The question, as uh, Cooper was referring to, was um, how do you translate that well into the meat space? And I think that requires boomer whisperers. And that also requires you in the same way that it requires us Christians to actually walk the walk rather than just do whatever will we say online like you know the, everyone larps to some extent the question becomes how much of that larp is just online and not the live action you know role play stuff and so you have to do the live action part too i guess and uh for some people that means the whole basket weaving idea where you meet in person you, you form friendships and things like that the old glory club has their their chapter formation where guys just get together and they do sporting events they treat themselves like a fraternity it's explicitly non-political you have of course the exit group and so on i mean kevin did a great job organizing the natal conference like that was huge that's a very important um subject matter here i think and so it's it's about translating the ideas and putting them to practice, right? This is the old, again, the the, the, the the reason why I think we're all secretly crypto Marxists. It's like, well, how do we put the theory into praxis? And and here we are. <laughs> right, yeah. The the thing that I've been, so I like- Male I, pipe I, bombs I, to industrialists. <laughs> For legal Thank reasons, you, I have to disavow. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> We don't know that guy. He just shows up here. Sometimes. Yeah, he, he just he just hijacked the stream. I'm like it's awfully green. What's going on? Well, yeah, you're you probably the green light. Apparently, yeah. I, I know, but I look extra green tonight. I'm very close. fitting so, for a frog. Hmm. So the uh, the the kind of operating premise that I'm 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 going with here is until I see stuff that that says otherwise to me is after. So someone someone exposed me to the term PayPal mafia, which I'd never I'd never actually realized it was actually like it actually has its own Wikipedia page. And and I was looking at this trend I was kind of starting to notice as we were doing the generational analysis thing. I was like, it's interesting that there's a lot of of 
personalities that I would call Gen X in their, both in their age and, and in more of their outlook, the way that they seem to relate to the world, uh, you know, the Joe Rogan, Chuck Tucker, Elon, um, there's, there's a number of them, Alex Jones. These are all, these are all much more, uh, Gen X oriented in the way that they, they kind of borrow from this Gen X spirit. And as I realized, okay, well, what, I'm, I'm guessing over the next 10 to 20 years or so, we're going to see, we're going to get to the point where, where the boomers are gone completely. There is no boom, no more boomer generation. And what, what's the society going to look like then when you don't have that boomer influence there? What direction are we going now? So I can start skating to where the puck is going. And this led me down a deep rabbit hole of, I, I hadn't paid any attention to Vivek at all. I was just, I'd called him a uh, uh, Republican Andrew Yang and was just like, whatever. And then I decided one day, uh, someone was telling me I should, I should check him out more. And I was like, all right, whatever. So I decided to start uh, listening to his long form stuff. And I realized that I, I'd only been listening to his short form, like where he's barnstorming basically. And, and he does that. He does it very effectively. He boomer whispers very effectively with that. But a lot of it is very cringe to my, to my very seasoned uh, online, overly ears. online ears. Right, exactly. And, and, but then I started listening to his long form stuff where he starts, he's like his, his conversation with the, on the Sean Ryan show, his conversations with uh, Jordan Peterson, even his conversations with David Pakman, which was one of the worst things I've ever listened to in my life. They, and I realized, okay, this guy is not that at the very least, this guy has done extensive reading. He has immersed himself in this worldview comprehensively because he's able to talk about these things off the cuff better than I am like better than most people. I know he's one of the most, uh, uh, insightful with respect to the exact sort of things we're talking about, the nature of the administrative state, where it came from, uh, the principal agent problem, all these things. And he's going at length on this. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, this is, I've never seen a politician that's capable of doing this. A guy, a guy who chooses to run for office and he's also capable of, of, of speaking like this. Well, he, he is also not a politician, which I think right. him. I, I know that's the old talking point, but it is, it is the best part about him. This is that he, like Trump, he's not a politician and he, he's a well-read man. I like I I like Vivek. I, I want to make it clear. I do like the guy. I just don't think he being in the executive role is um is that I think he would be better as like chief of staff or being the someone who can fire a lot of people on, on the president's wishes or whatever. Because I like I think we, Trump has the same problem with Biden, where it's you know they're they're old school in that respect. They kind of don't know what time it is. I thought you saw that very clearly. I, I thought it was where Tucker was asking Trump, like, they want to put you in prison. They want to kill you. Do you think there's going to be a civil war, right? And the Gen Xers are asking all these questions. And there's something that Buck Johnson also said uh, in, in an interview with Jay Burden, where he was just like, there's this Gen X rebellion happening. And I think that it's good because the boomers have been in power for way too long. And so you have this sort of like angsty Gen Xers that want to do things. I think Vivek being, he's, he's technically a millennial. And I mean, he's going for it. Good on him. And... I, again, I want him to just do what he says, call, call the administrative state. And I think it's good that he's with the Trump campaign. And he is smarter than a lot of people give him credit for. And maybe this is the purity spiral, or I think the worst part about sometimes with Twitter is, is that Twitter also does that auto decapitation with mm -hmm. respects to no nuance because mm -hmm. everyone did the um knee-jerk reaction like the the indian must go like he must be strapped to a cannon right and it's like well 
I don't think you're going to get that. So the question becomes, do you either work with the guy and make him useful for you or do you not? And I still think in my own worldview that you can make these people useful and you want people like him disseminating ideas. Cause uh, I'm sorry, Vivek is not that much older than any of us on this stream. And mm -hmm. I don't think his political career is over after this election cycle. He will be a very powerful fundraiser, talking head, RNC chairman. He's not going away. And I know that some people are single issues on identity or whatever it may be, but they're, they're here to stay um, lest the world ends and the second coming happens at any point in time. And then we're all really going to have to deal with the consequences <laughs> of the words we've said. How old is he? Uh, I think he's 38. Like he's, you know. He's 12 years older than me. Okay. We have nothing in common. <laughs> well, he's so Mr. Thing, Frogman. The thing with, with, uh, with Vivek. Quick question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, what, what time do you got to get out of here? Uh, I'm good for another hour. It's all up to you. All right. All right. Sounds good. Me too. So the thing that, uh, as I as I was watching him and, and listening to him, it wasn't him so much that really got my attention. It was the fact that, okay, I'm listening to him and he's. I hear him go at length into discussing all of these things, the stuff he would do in the in the executive branch to thin the administrative state, going through like line by line of specific uh, 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 specific uh, niche laws and and speaking about historical stuff. And he's very clearly like, I, I I'm sure he's read Yarvin just the way he talks. And so I, and my, what stood out to me then was not him per se, the fact that if he does understand the world, the way we do approximately, what is he doing running for office? Why is he there? What is he trying to, what is he trying to accomplish? Because it clearly can't be trying to actually be elected president. And he would recognize if he's, if he's correctly identifying what happened with Trump's presidency, the fact that he got completely kneecapped and just putting a, putting a president that wants the right things into office doesn't accomplish it, what's he trying to accomplish? So the only thing I could reason then is he must be aware that there is significant institutional support for what he's talking about. That there must already exist people with wealth, power, and influence who are ready to step in and support his agenda were his agenda to get some sort of power. Because he's not gonna, he's not gonna be like, oh well, we need to go message and we need to spread the message and get people riled up. Like if he sees the world the way we do, he would recognize that that's bullshit. And so then this this connected to me looking at the PayPal mafia thing and starting to realize just how extensive their roots are into all of the major institutions, and then going and looking at like their likes on Twitter, the individual members of the quote unquote pay PayPal mafia, or more broadly, just kind of these this tech founder. Uh, a culture going and actually looking at the things that they're liking and saying, and they're all talking about Vivek and they're all big China Hawks, uh, anti-immigration and anti, uh, ESG and DEI. These are like major, uh, planks for them. And when he created strive asset management in 2022, the three people who invested in it first were Peter Thiel, JD Vance and Bill Ackman. And so then so now, okay, Bill Ackman is this guy who's losing his shit on Twitter, taking it to Harvard and Business Insider and all of this. He's he's like the, the most generic regime creature type guy. If you look at his history, he and his wife are like major donors to Planned, Parent, Planned Parenthood. And yet here he is firing broadsides at the academy. And I'm seeing all these things happening at once. I'm like, okay, this can't be a coincidence. And then somebody introduced me to Project 2025 and I started reading down their policy proposals. And I was like, I've heard this before. This is word for word what Vivek is talking about.
Yeah. Vivek is running down every single one of these in the exact same way, talking about them in the exact same way. And in his Sean Ryan interview, he explicitly said that he has a big team of advisors coming from venture capital, organizational management, et cetera, et cetera. And what occurred to me is if you're a tech founder who lives the world of venture capital and sitting on, on executive boards, the one thing that you understand more than anything else is executive power. You recognize when there is an absence of executive power and you know, you know what it looks like, you know what the effects are, and you know how to restore it. And so this is when it, it clicked with me. This is an actual legitimate counter elite. This is not just some niche little, little crew of a couple of millionaires or something who are doing their libertarian Bitcoin party or whatever. Yeah. Like these are actual major movers and shakers. And what's their angle? I don't need them to be my guys. But if they want to restore ex true executive power to the executive branch and abolish the administrative state, well, that's a move in the formalist direction. It, it may not be as far as I want him to go, but I would much rather have, like, I can attach my interests to theirs. I can't attach my interests to the existing regime. It's just not possible. It's just not even feasible. But if their interests are, let's get rid of all this bloat. Let's quit playing these ESG DEI games. Let's, let's actually take China seriously. Let's restore the borders so we actually have a country because we want to run it like a business. I'm like... If you get halfway there, I will like that better than what we have now. And and then I can attach myself to your like, you know, if you guys are like the the the, the air, hot air balloon taking off, well, I'm just going to clip my carabiner to your hot air balloon so I get pulled up with you. The so what is that? How does that have? Uh, what do you think of that? Well, a, a good friend of mine by the name of Christopher Sandbach said that there is a very uncomfortable battle for the future that is currently being fought that most people don't realize what's happening. And yeah. the the PayPal mafia, I, they're not. It's not called that in the um, California ideology. Uh, that's an essay by Richard Barnbrook and Andy Cameron, and it's sort of this critique of um, what I guess you could call the PayPal mafia. Just this was written in '95, and it was talking about how it, the these guys are sort of these technological optimists, almost to a point of being determinists that they're going to, you know, try and usher in more free market stuff. We need to get rid of like these social controls, DEI and the rest, because that's an inhibition towards freedom. And so really, I, I think that this counter elite is just the embodiment of that ideology um, versus the, the, I guess, the logical conclusion of just like egalitarian progressive liberalism. And one of these, I think, is better than the other. Um I think both have their, I mean, one has their problems. And I think you can read that in some of that infinite growth mentality out of like the Andreas and Orowitz bit. But I mean, you even saw that with uh, JP Morgan Chase CEO, uh, um, Jamie Dimon saying like, hey, Trump was like mean, but he was right about a lot of things. And that's a clear counter signal that when one of the richest, most influential people on earth is saying, listen, this guy was right. And maybe we shouldn't be so cruel to the people who were there. Uh, to me, that does, I think, indicate a lot of what you're saying, that there is a significant elite backing willing to go for things. The question that runs in my head is, is how much of this might be a return to something older? Like, yeah, um, I just saw that in the chat there. That's kind of funny. <laughs> so, I have like, I have such mixed feelings about this because everything he's saying, I like temperament, like my constitution disagrees with but he just gave us 50 bucks <laughs> well on one hand what are you doing to me man uh, on one on one hand i 
definitely agree with the notion of I don't like that's the problem with the Republican Party now is that I don't want to uh, I don't want it but legally like if you're going to give me yeah. you know in, infinity H1B mold bugs uh, mm-hmm. then at least let me you know have some remigration policies in place because at the end of the day that's st- the the whole civilization is incommunicable part like we, we, we see this there we we don't clap this was the whole McLuhan thing it says that the global village will come and then once we're all in tight proximity to one another turns out we all hate each other because we're all so different and this is the you see this in in microcosm on twitter and on other forms of social media and this is how we can never be exposed to other ideas because we know that the other is bad and they're not us so we want to get rid of them or we never want to associate with them and this is why we want to ratio people on twitter so much because violence is a form of identity and because our idea of violence is so gamified and kitchified that well, instead of killing each other in the streets like we would have in 1848, we're just right. going to, you know, yep. settle our differences over a good old video essay or a ratio on Twitter. And it's and, and in a lot of ways, our own form of violence is fake and gay. Right. And that that's, a, I guess, some qualifying thesis to Bap's point. But it does illustrate to me that these things like on the super chat do matter like they, they clearly do like phil is right yeah no it's it's the what is the point of any of this it's that part that i like Ugh. well it gives me the ick you know it gives you the uh, you are spiritually an e-girl cooper i don't know what to tell you it gives you, a, <laughs> it gives you the ick i'm sorry sir uh, return to tiktok um but i i don't know like this is the this goes this goes back what's this tiktok thing the kids are using these uh, days you'll find out you'll get the ick from there too so I, I I guess like I've got I've gotten only <laughs> I I was told this is how I like I told this guy that he was a coomer and he needs to seek God when he told me like very early on when I set up my like subscribe star and everything's like you know OnlyFans takes the smallest cut and I was like why do you know that um <laughs> Gooner. a little concerning there Gooner you know uh yeah. you, you can move the overton window and I mean honestly just to see Kirk and them talk about like the great replacement and to even see Vivek unfortunately cock up his the talking point of the great replacement like no people like me and my family should be here no not really like no 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 but like you're getting there right you know renad camus point about the great replacement's more accurate but you know you're getting there and so that's that's the thing is just like as an outsider you're permanently stuck in this like angry what is the point if my ideas get accepted because they're going to get co-opted? It's the same thing where people were getting upset, and myself personally, to some extent, about the whole Bill Ackman thing. It's like, you've donated to Planned Parenthood. You still donate to all this stuff. You're talking about Dean Phillips. Like, you want some alternative to buy, to Trump, to beat Trump. And it's just like, so at what point are we just not going to get, like, Norman Potterets 2.0, where, like, instead of my Negro problem in hours in 1963 commentary magazine, it's going to be my woke problem in hours in 2024. And it's just like, I, how much of this am I, have I already seen before play out? Because there was a change yeah. of elites in circulation with the neocons in the 60s and 70s. And just back in the 1960s and 70s, the majority of the population had to now cater to this minority interest group to make the political coalition work. And sure, they benefited from some things, but a lot of the things that screwed over that group in the first place stayed in, in, in law and stayed in power. So how much of the problems that we have today will be addressed only for a small portion of it, like DEI or whatever, and not the the bigger issues that are still civilizationally challenging the existence of the country and its people? One of the things you mentioned, you, you talked about the uh, like instead of having a duel, we, we, we do a, like a video essay battle and 
this is a thought that it occurred to me. Actually, it's something I'd written down here to try to remind myself to to bring up is it occurred to me we've in in history, you look through the cycles of history every time that you, you get like societal insta- instability to the point where we have now, then I mean, the guillotines would have been out by now. But for some reason, they haven't been. And I think there's a, probably a lot of reasons for this. One of them is, is I mean, like the microplastics in the balls and the lack of, of testosterone. <laughs> but to what extent do you think the internet has become, and not the, just the internet, but, but social media particularly, and social media in its present form in particular, has become a sort of pressure relief valve for for uh, violence, where instead of going out and necessarily participating in violence, we now export a lot of our, 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 our political violence into social media. Not all of it, but much of it has been exported to social media. And I guess two-part question, to what extent do you think that is the case? And if you do think it is the case, do you think that this is a trend that can continue? Are we, are we entering a new Christian, not a new Christian era, it would be a new Christian era, but are we entering a new era of, of uh, human anthropology whereby we actually begin exporting our violent tendencies into digital space? And so you can be digitally depersoned, digitally deplatformed, digitally uh, executed, but it doesn't actually touch your person. Three-part question. Three-part question. Then talk about, uh, pontificate for a moment about digital deracination, which is a term I heard you use on that stream the other day, and I thought it was brilliant. Oh, well, sure. Uh, We'll start with the three-parter, I guess. Um, Starting off, whichever venture capitalist designs and develops a technology pill or therapy that removes the microplastics out of the testicles of every American man, king of America, right there, number one. Uh, Whoever, I will... What if he's brown? We'll work with it. We'll work with it. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Um, we'll still, you know, we'll still, uh, we'll still improve on the grip strength stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Isaac. <laughs> uh, it sounds like Cooper's going to go to a trip to Dime Square pretty soon. But uh, so to no to get back to the, the the point about violence, I think this is why you see. Uh, this is why I stay as far away as humanly possible from like Christian Twitter. And yes. I and I got some flack for saying that. Oh out, yeah, out, out loud one time because they're like, "Why the orthodorks?" Well, I, I stay away from all of it. Uh, period. I, I just stay away from all cancer, forms of man. It. Pure cancer. It, it is, and it is. But why? You know, it might be called cringe. It might be called coal or whatever. But what is all of this inter uh, personality, intersecular online fighting? Other than what McLuhan would say is, you know, I, violence is a quest for identity. We have displaced. In a very discarnate fashion, which is very concerning for people who are so interested in the incarnate word of God, that we have exported a discarnate form of violence and identity away from our physical self into uh, these online battles and spaces where, you know, we're, we're all concerned about, uh, you know, these the e-Catholics versus e-Lutherans versus e-Orthobros or whatever. And it's like, man, you know, there, a, a friend of mine who I believe is a Presbyterian had said, that um you know like online ortho bros had done more damage than the turks did to constantinople and i thought that that was like a super damning indictment of how bad um things things can be i think the problem is is that the the right in general not just our just in right wingers in general have this understanding and have for for years that the law doesn't isn't on your side you know despite the fact that the letter of the law may be on your side we fundamentally know that uh unlike antifa 
where they can be sponsored by the state, work in cooperation with clergy and work in cooperation with non-governmental organizations and have pallets of bricks and U-Haul trucks full of shields and batons deployed at random. If that happened to our side, we would be like drone strike yesterday. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Oh, it would be real bad. Um, and that's a big concern. And so I think that's one big reason why so much of our like escapism for violence is digitized. It is discarnate because we know that if we were to be like the proud boys march in the street and go like redact an abortion clinic or redact an Antifa headquarters in North Carolina, uh, you would be in trouble very quickly. You'd be hunted down and you'd be treated like a J6 guy. And that would be really no one wants that. Right. And so and that's what we also saw with J6. And this is where Yarvin was like, God doesn't like it when you play pretend. He was right. Uh, for a man mm-hmm. who doesn't believe in God, he was right about that saying, God doesn't like it when you pr- play pretend because either you take over the place or the enemy will punish you and, and arrest you in that respect. And so we're we're used to um, we're, we're used to being on like the, the, the fringe. We're used to being online. We're aware that anarcho-tyranny works against us. So that's one reason why I think so much of our, our violence is, is digitized. And that's also why I think that you see a lot of people get really skeptical when there are quote-unquote right-wing groups because are they feds? Are they not? Um, and that's a big issue, I think, to see there. As for why we do it, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, as, as McLuhan wrote in Understanding Media, like just games in general, there are these organized social areas of pride that we can engage in. And he said the Anglosphere, especially the United Kingdom and the United States, is really good at that because we have so much organized sporting environments. I think that you can translate that very well to the digital. Like we're Twitter is nothing more than a clout-based open world PVP server where we're all like, you know, that 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 Will Stancil guy that like Steve Saylor's been arguing with for the last three days. That has been like enemy spotted in Counter-Strike. And every right-wing Twitter account has been like going after that guy. Entertaining is all can be. But I also know to some extent um, in real life, that's not going to stop um, the Biden administration from like dropping off a busload of Guatemalans into like my backyard or whatever. That's a huge concern. And so the the digital deracination term to Cooper's point is sort of the same sort of idea before this. And I came up with this before I started reading a lot of McLuhan was the same sort of uh, auto amputation that McLuhan talks about. We can amputate ourselves. Mm. We can deracinate ourselves from what's outside of our window. And this is how we end up speaking a language that like most normies, right? Like we even have a word for it. like the normies wouldn't get it. Right. And they wouldn't understand that I'm speaking on these, like, you know, I'm, I'm actually like based and we're king pilled and trad and whatever. And it's like, they're like, sir, what language are you speaking? Like, you know, <laughs> um, please, please take your meds schizo. Right. And that, that, that's why you need those whispers. But the the deracination part is, is that it allows us to become so focused with what's online rather than the immediate issues that face us. And that can be your own physical health and livelihood. It can be your job. It can be your relations to family. It can be your relations to local politics. I print out... If I think they're like unpopular issues and I take them to my county GOP office because I think that hey, you know, county GOP chair, you might like this, you know, piece from Warren McIntyre. You might like this piece written by the distributors. You might like this analysis on why we should support X over Y and and this election issue. Um, And so that's, I I think that that needs to happen. You need to find a way to integrate your your beliefs into your your day-to-day life. And again, that goes back to the whole crypto Marxist point with theory and praxis. But I mean, uh, for us especially, right? Like the point would be, 
how can you translate these ideas in an environment where politically speaking, you're fighting a very asymmetrical conflict? You know, uh, I, I did a video on this a few years ago at this point. I don't know how old it is, but it was called the, um, the revisionist and the hegemon. Like the, 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 the USG, like this whole liberal globo homo thing, that is the hegemonic state. Right wingers are put in a position where they are the revisionist state, where they wish to change the status quo of things. And that does kind of put you, oddly enough, despite being conservative, despite being traditional or reactionary, that puts you in a revolutionary position. And that's the the weird sort of dissonance that we live in. And so that's that's the dissonance, uh, the deracination part, and that's the way I guess we approach that question. We, we have outsourced our violence to the digital because we live very discarnately, and we know that if we were to do violence in real life or even do something smart like what Daniel Penny did by putting a crazy guy in a chokehold, you're going to get arrested, and you're going to have the book thrown at you. Like I saw not too long ago there was this wedding venue that – said that we're so sorry that this impromptu wedding happened despite not being booked. Yeah. And he took a picture and the wedding was a black wedding. And I'm like, I already know why you let it go through because you didn't want to be called racist and like had your storefront burned down by a, a mob of ethno-narcissists. So, Workers of the world unite. Yeah, basically, except it's you know, <laughs> just uh, people who can't hear smoke alarms of the world unite. So. <laughs> One of the, the if... So given this 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 exporting of, of violence into the digital and, and having so much more of the political process happening in the digital, uh, the extent to which this which the extent to which this is true, I think would then how would I say how would I describe this? Like if you have if you have an a, a, an like a like a think of like a percent like a health bar or like a like a an accumulation bar where it's getting up to a hundred percent. And it's like once you get to a hundred percent, that means that that's when you get the full like uh, completion of the war, the full regime change, a whole new thing comes in. Obviously, it doesn't work that way, but just conceptually, then what that would tell me is that we're much further along in this process than it actually looks like. If we're grading, because we're we're used to evaluating the progression of political events and and the the outcomes of wars and that sort of thing, if we're used to grading this on a kinetic events scale, then the lack of legitimate kinetic events doesn't necessarily mean that the war hasn't been progressing. We So then it could be like we're, instead of people waiting for the civil war to begin or the new civil war or whatever, whatever war, we're, it actually has begun already. It's been going for a while. And we've progressed through this process to a point where instead of, I guess there's, there's, a, there's a major problem that I see with within a lot of our online circles of and that and I get I get I get sucked into this this perpetual doomer uh uh like looking for all of the uh all of the ways that everything is not going to work it's figuring out why why we're blocked at every front why our enemies are the most powerful thing in the world how everything is actually 40 chess by the libs to to um to root us out and to frame us and where people start getting just kind of like, like retreating into themselves. Everyone's just kind of sitting around waiting for the happening. And when in reality, I think that this is, this is a time for great optimism. It's not that there's not bad things happening. It's that we have a greater capacity to either change things or change ourselves now than we ever have in the past. We we're, uh, we're able to organize and uh, take on projects and affect the narrative and actually have some sort of influence on the trajectory of things in a way that we have never had before. 
You've got Nassim Taleb's like uh, his his intolerant minority concept. And every society always moves around the intolerant minority. But we actually have the capacity to be that intolerant minority now. We just have to figure out exactly how to do that. But in order to figure out how to do that, you have to first have a desire to do that. You have to have hope and optimism and a, and a, and a sense of the future existing beyond you know, the next year or the next election cycle, or, you know, like we have the capacity now to build a civilization in a way that people never have before. But in order to do that, we have to first have the desire to do that, which means not subjecting yourself to perpetual demoralization all the time. And I, a lot of, we coined a term a few weeks back, uh, the gunic, and it's a, it's a portmanteau between gooners and eunuchs. And what we're directing it at is the types of guys we see who present themselves as, you know, based and trad and conservative and right wing and, and, you know, they're just the right amount of racist or sexist or whatever. And they often have fantastic insights on a lot of things. But when you really get down into the meat of what they're saying, their prescription is ultimately nihilistic. It's basically you can't do anything. You just need to wait for a great man to arrive. You just need to to. It's to sit around and wait for other people to solve your problems or just complain and be resentful that they haven't solved your problems. And, and resentment is really like, like, uh, or I would say it this way, liberalism is resentment corporatized. Liberalism runs on resentment. And I don't mean just liberalism is in like, I'm, I'm speaking like philosophically, liberalism is an ideology of resentment. It's the way that people, resentful people organize themselves. If, and if we're going to transcend out of that, if we're going to actually build a civilization for our people, we can't wait for someone else to do it for us. Like I see like Vivek, I see him as the, the, the tip of a spear of, a, of, a, of an organized group that are, that are rising up because they're dissatisfied with the existing civilization and they want to create a new one. They want to port to that one, however that's going to happen. And I don't necessarily need their interests to be my interests to capitalize on their momentum, to capitalize on what they're doing. Essentially, instead of using Trump as a wrecking ball, now we can use this entire a uh, cabal or whatever as a wrecking ball to attach ourselves to their interests, use their momentum to carve out our own interests. But it seems like anytime someone tries to suggest a legitimate, you know, the, the, you know, the Marxist, the theory versus praxis thing, it's like, we're most comfortable theory selling. But as soon as people start suggesting uh, actual practical things, people can begin to do to, to improve their lives. Then they're either grifters or uh, feds, or there, there, it, it, there's like a like a crabs in the bucket uh, phenomenon. Oh yeah, the the, the shark wooming, the, the yes. shark wooming. Yeah, yeah they're just like, happy to hang out in the longhouse and wait for daddy to get home. Mm -hmm. Well, this is why I tell uh, I, I I had this this point of waiting. I I wish I came up with that term gunic. That was so good because I I, <laughs> I just would say right wing eunuch because I I, I I'm, I'm going to use that term now. I'm going to give you guys credit for it. That's that's such a great <laughs> great you. term awesome. because <laughs> I, I I first thought so of now that. a bunch of people on Twitter can just slaughter it. And yeah, yeah they're going to kill it. <laughs> absolutely, they're going to kill it. But you know that's okay. Uh, cause I, cause I, this is not an, well, maybe it's an insult, but I don't mean it to be. Cause like I read, someone said, oh, you should read this review of Bronze Age Mindset. It was by an e-girl named Bronze Age Shoddy. And the first paragraph mentions that she's 29 <laughs> and childless. And I was like, okay, so a eunuch, like, you know, like a right wing eunuch. <laughs> yeah. And that, yeah. that's really uh -huh. depressing on all of those things. Uh, the, the, this is where I would remind, especially for like your, your Christians in the audience, like this is where the parable of the talents is so important. The master wants you to see you working. He does not want yes. you to just bury your talent yep. or to bury your work. 
and to not do anything. So when he comes back, uh, he's going to say that you're lazy, you're wicked, and condemn you to hell. And so you should be working. I, there are a lot of people who have been very pro, like, quote-unquote, vibe shift, or that they're very optimistic. And I I want to see it. Um, I want to I want to have it. Oh, like, oh, Lord, help me with my disbelief. And I do agree with you. Like, it doesn't matter that so-and-so is not my guy. Uh, the question is, is what are you doing? And if, mm. um, and this has been the whole, there's been a lot of discourse. For instance, there was a gentleman who was in the chat earlier by the name of Meta Prime. And he's this whole big parallel society guy. And he wants to do these things. And, and he's all for Peter it. Mine. Yeah, that guy made it, you know, um, paid a mime. But uh, sounds like a really cool, like, VTuber, but he's a mime and he's really silent. But anyways, uh, <laughs> that would actually be a fun gimmick. But uh, back back to the main point is, is that, yeah, there is, it doesn't matter if he is. The question is, is can you ride, I guess, the vibe shift or the, the changing of the seasons to where you have planted something fruitful? Uh, and I've told people all the time, I said, if I plant the, the uh, you know, vine and fig tree that my kids sit under, and aren't afraid then all my life is worth it right like that's that's what you because there is no like we have like the right wing has great teleology like you're focused on your posterity you want things to be better after you're gone the problem is is that a lot of people just have consigned themselves i think to some very large extent that they're just waiting for the world to end and this is the big problem that i see with like the right and this is why i like charles haywood is that even though he's got that like he has maybe an eschatology on how things are going with the regime that I may not be a hundred percent with the guy knows that the time to build is now while it's still good because things 50 years from now will probably be a lot worse because things will tend to get worse before they get better. But if things are good now, we should be using this fruitful season to, to plant and to do good works and, and, and to move forward with that. Because the only thing that I want to hear when I die is thou has done well, my good and faithful servant. That's all I'm looking forward to. And so if that means that thou has done well, like good and faithful servant, then well, I should probably be working and I should be spending what five talents or two talents or one talents I have to go out and make more. And that requires me uh, to trade and to talk to people and to evangelize and to build things. And that's why I'm invested in my local community. Like my parish has uh, started the work and the groundwork to have a food cooperative. So we have sort of a legal way to like make sure that our religious you know, kinsmen have ways to feed themselves in case like supply lines or the supply chain gets borked again. Like those are the things that you should be building. So Mr. Mr. Frogman. Yes. Are you saying that you support usury? No. Okay. I'm pretty right, sure we'll I'm commanded you. not to do that. <laughs> the I know we're I know we're all Orthodox and such, but we do read our Bibles, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, that was occasionally. That was kind of a <laughs> kind of an inside joke. Yeah. No. <laughs> not perusery. When uh you're talking about like building, about building and being productive and creative. And I think this is where the, so we, we actually, we started our own company, uh, doing, uh, uh, fitness and nutrition consulting for our guys to try to help the, the, the common problem of, of extremely online right-wing physique guys. And I think that there's, you know, the, the microplastics in the balls, the, the, there's these distinct internet communities and you've got like the, the theory cell right wing, the guys who have all their, their political philosophy in the right order. Uh, but then it, you know, invariably you'll see one of these guys and you'll actually see his body and like everything that he ever talked about. You're like, all right, I can't take you seriously anymore because yeah. you look like a skinny little dweeb or a, a doughy, 
um, uh, greasy guy. But then you've got like the you've got like the Soul Bras and the Josh Rayner and some of these guys who are leg- like legitimately physique maxing, and the, you you get kind of a nerds versus jocks thing going on the you know the age old uh, conflict. But I think there's something legitimately to the fact that a a, a Christian man in particular has a responsibility, number one, to take care of his body, but number two, to be productive and creative in general. I think this is this is what we are created for. Man was was created and put in the garden to name the animals, which is providing order and structure and identity, being, being um, outwardly productive and creative, generating new things. The capacity for creation, even typologically, comes from the man. The man is the one who plants the seed. It comes from him. And we've... Part of the the extremely online reality is that we've become detached from the real world. We're not actually producing and creating things in the real world, and this has a distinct psychological effect on 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 a man in particular. I think to not see to, to not be able to track your own trajectory, to see progress toward goals being accomplished, to see that you're better today than you were yesterday, to to actually have metrics that tell you how you have imposed yourself on the world. The thing Cooper brought up earlier where you had uh, like Sam Harris who's spurging out about about how much of a threat Donald Trump is, or even today you see the regime, the way they react, they treat us like we're a threat because we are legitimately. If young right-wing men actually organized together and did something together, that would be one of the most powerful things on the planet because that's just how men are. That's the, the a fact of, of male psychology. And the fact that they see us as a threat should lend us confidence. We should, have, we should be confident and bold and be willing to actually make moves, to be willing to actually step out and take risks and create things rather than being fearful and just waiting for the next thing to come down the line. And if we start doing that, then I think that we we begin picking up that momentum. You, you talked about the vibe shift, the 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 momentum that we could build would depend upon us actually wanting to build that momentum, as opposed to just kind of waiting, like pointing the finger at everyone else. All right, so you, you're gonna go, you're gonna go, you know what? And there's a lot of these things happening. There's stuff happening behind the scenes. People who aren't talking, but who are actually head down building stuff. And the the narrative doesn't really take those sort of things into consideration. But I think one of the one of the biggest things that I see holding our guys back is essentially like a lack of imagination and a lack of hope, a lack of genuine hope. I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I grew up like immersed in this eschatological, uh, crippling, it, it, it almost, it, it begins manifesting as a sort of weird Gnosticism where you completely de- devalue the existing physical world because it's like well this is the fallen world and and pretty soon you know there's gonna be the end of time and then there's gonna be a new world so this one really doesn't matter that much it's this all the stuff going on in here that matters i'm very so i'm very sensitive to that i grew up around that and i and i, I experienced that and and now i see that same thing at large even among our guys who have all the right ideas there isn't an actual i hate the word but a praxis there isn't a you know, there's a lot of people who are talking about ideas of what we can do, but not actually the things that we can do. Our, our good friend, uh, Jason, at the 2-Bit Podcast, he says this so often that people, I think, are ready to hit him. And he says, the ritual and the reality are one. This is, And from an orthodox perspective, this should really click. That the rituals that we do, are they have a tangible effect on 
reality. The things that you choose to do with yourself, the things you put your hands to actually change physical reality. They change the world, the world around us. And we have now at our disposal tools through the internet, through the creation of unique financial assets, through the ability to, uh, with remote work and the ability to generate income remotely, you, you can now conceivably think of getting, I don't know, 100 people together. Those 100 people all participate in the economy such that they develop a million dollar net worth each. And those 100 people all go to a single town and they go settle that single town. They, you know, it could be a 10,000 uh, uh, population town. That Those families would own that town. And they could begin actually not not really worrying about everything happening at the federal level. Because in order to actually be able to influence the stuff at the federal level, you have to be able to have some sort of influence or some, some sort of sway at the local level. You have to establish yourself a ground zero. And anytime that I see people talk about this, the automatic response, I hear it in my own head. The automatic response is, well, here's what they would do. They would stop you here. They would, they would get in your way here. They would penalize you here. And I'm, I'm to the point where I'm like, so fucking what? Of course they are. Of course they are. Nobody's saying that we're not going to have enemies. Nobody's saying that it's going to be easy, but it's necessary. We don't live in a civilization anymore. We have lost our civilization. We live in a primal state with networks of competing tribes, all doing some sort of a technologically advanced version of flinging poo at each other. It's up to us to build that civilization. It's not going to come back. Western civilization's not calling. It, she, she stopped calling. She's dead. She's gone. We can, we can derive things from that, but we've lost our civilization. We have to rebuild a civilization. And that means we need to plan for the long game. We have to be looking 10, 20, 50, 100 years out. We have to be planting trees that our grandchildren are going to be able to sit under. But in order to do that, you have to believe that's going to happen. You have to believe there's actually going to be a time 50 years from now and that it's not going to be Mad Max. Because, I mean, if it's Mad Max, well, then you've got a lot bigger issues to, to be concerned with. But there's, there's it, it, I, I get the sense that we're in a sort of uh, a lull, like an interregnum period here where things are going to start happening when people choose to make them happen, which seems trite, but it's it's true. The happening isn't going to happen without us. We have to make the happening happen. And I'm not saying this in a military sense per se. I'm saying in the sense that we don't have capital. We need to be amassing capital together. And we have the tools at our disposal to do that. But it's going to take dedicated, intentional communities that are willing to have this indefatigable optimism about the future. You don't have to be unrealistic. You can be realistic and optimistic, but I think they're... I've been thinking about this for myself because I'm naturally an optimistic person. I naturally want to look on the bright side of everything. And I've begun realizing that there's, I think that there's a need for people who are going to be white-pilled about everything, no matter what. Because it's down to a matter of perspective. Whether you want to be black-pilled or white-pilled, whether you want to accept the doomer outlook, or whether you want to be you know, the, 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 the optimistic, peaceful soy jack looking off into the, into the, the sunset, like it, you can be either one. You can legitimately look at any, any single event and decide this is how this thing is a white pill or this is how this thing is a black pill. It's a conscious choice to choose the doomerist view. And the doomerist view is ultimately self-defeating. The people who, who commit themselves to doomerism are working against their own ends. It's, it's strictly counterproductive. I guess that was just a rant I had to get off my chest.
So go pick no, up no. heavy shit and go outside and ameliorate your Kierkegaardian angst. Zoomers. Yeah. <laughs> Lift weights, touch grass. It's usually, a, those are good pieces of advice to follow, right? <laughs> good place no, but start. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, right, those are, those are true things. Like I had mentioned earlier, the master doesn't want to see you waiting. And, mm -hmm. uh, is Dave the Distributist likes to crypt so much from 40k, and this isn't, you know, it's just that this is a war of belief that's going to be, uh, are you actually going to act on your belief, or is it just going to be uh, a nice, comfy, warm, fuzzy platitude that you tell yourself, you know? Like, to some extent, there is the ritualistic aspect of saying nothing ever happens. Because if you encant that, and you're trying to put on some kind of magic spell that nothing ever happens to validate your own worldview, despite the fact that you're partaking in a 24-hour news cycle every single day where discursive events become tomorrow's news headlines, then that's a it's kind of on you, all right? But that's gunakry. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's it's basically right. Like, uh, it's, uh, you can stay on your your community of gunocracy and just make it work from there. But <laughs> the 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 problem that I yeah, again, like you were saying, like how that instant thought in your brain is like how they're gonna screw you over or whatnot. Like, yeah, I mean, like I, I don't think that stopped Nate Fisher and the new founding guys from having mm -hmm. Jason Wilson and James Lindsay call them out for trying to start some sort of town project or whatever. Like, if anything, that just means that you're on the the right track. And if you're, what's the old phrase? Like, you know, if you're if you're if you're getting flack, you're on target. And that does illustrate that you're going to have to do some good and to do things. And this, I think, comes back to the issue that. On, on the theory cell side or, or things, they'll, they'll say like, oh, the, the world needs to be re-enchanted. And uh, I will eventually get this stupid essay out. I'm almost finished with it. I had to get some edits through. But about that subject, because one of the things about enchantment requires you to answer the call to adventure. Not that Joseph Campbell was right on his thesis of the monomyth, but he is right in the sense that his hero's journey has been the technique from which all great narratives have been told. And if we are going to be writing our own history to escape history, then we are going to have to take that call to adventure. And the nice thing is, is that for our generation, for people younger than us, that thank God there are still some competent mid-50s white guys that are looking around the world right now thinking, you've got to be shitting me. This is what we have to do? Whew, this is bad. Uh, and those guys you want to talk to. So, like, yeah, I'm going to talk to the Jeremy Carls of the world. Yeah, I'm going to talk to the, um, you, the 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 more successful captains of industry. I want to talk to people like Huntsman, Eric who are logistics Prince. experts. I want to talk mm -hmm. to Eric Prince. I'd love yes. to shake that man's hand and uh, just say, thank you, sir. Please take over the, the country. But uh, it's the those are the things you have to do. You have to talk to people like Eric Prince. You have to learn from them. And, I mean, this also starts at home. If you have a semi-decent relationship with your parents, or even if you have a good relationship with your parents, like, do you know your father's trade? Do you know the same technical mm. skills that he knows? Does your wife know the same things that her her mother knew about how to raise kids or how to, like, take care of things around the house with comics? Like, if you don't, that's a really good place to start. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's can say that this sounds like a peterson rant the problem with peterson is is that peterson never took it to the logical conclusion accepted christ and started acting instead he's unfortunately been captured by the evil one and now works for a bunch of zany zionists but that's you know unfortunately that's that's why i think jonathan pajot despite how maybe normie he can be he hasn't stopped trying to save peterson's soul and god will reward him handsomely for that in this life or the next mm -hmm. yeah you know when you uh when you reject logos, it's you kind of start doing stupid things.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. It literally makes you dumb. It sure does. And this is one of the beautiful things about about humanity, or a beautiful thing about orthodox the orthodoxy's perspective on humanity. It's not even orthodoxy's perspective. I mean, this is just reality, and orthodoxy recognizes the reality. But on Lord of Spirits, they said recently that uh, when it when they put it this way, it clicked for me, and I was like, I should have realized this before. But it really there was power in it. Was that the logos is human? The ordering principle of reality is human which fundamentally should be a cause for great peace and optimism. If you're if you're if your fear is that is that is like the destruction of humanity, well we already know the end. We know what's going to happen and we know with a proper with a proper anthropology, proper theology, proper ontology, you understand if the if the ordering principle of reality is human, then you you, you can't be a doomer about humanity. To be a doomer about humanity is to embody the anti-Christian perspective. By, by that, 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 that's it. By definition, being a doomer is is antichrist. Is an antichrist perspective. So, yeah, there's there's. Well, that, that's the ha- big consequence of living so discarnately. Is, yes. is that if you live if you live discarnately to some extension, you are becoming the very Gnostics that people like. To, I know people like to throw around that word a lot, and I think they use it oftentimes in the incorrect context. But when you are rejecting the actual like fleshly world that you're around and not building, and instead uh, being myopic and ready to just watch the world end and tweet about it live until no one <laughs> sees your tweets anymore as the bombs go off. All that you've done is that you have rejected the 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 life and the world that has been created for you and by the the creator. And to reject that, I think, is a great mistake, um, not only for your soul, but for the world that you are supposed to be the steward of. And so, again, like if we are living in a discarnate world, it is going to be up to the people that opt to live incarnately. And by accepting that incarnate life, that means living out your ritual, living living out your beliefs, and to do exactly what the master has told you, which is to work and to do and to build and to take up your cross. And if you're not taking up your cross and you're just tweeting about taking up your cross, that's not going to end well for you. Um, and, and that's very blatantly clear with how we see things online. Like it's it's the it's the rich man being very upset when he's being told to sell your possessions and to give to the poor. Like we're going to justify ourselves. We're going to try and trick them by asking who is our neighbor. And at the end of it all, like I think the answers are pretty clear. Like you're going to have to do something. That does not mean go jump in a in a truck and and or, or try and get a hold of a Toyota Helix. I don't think we're at that point yet. Maybe one day, but not right now. In, in the meantime, that means trying to build basic formats of community and structure. And, you know, it would be really good. And this is sort of one of the plans of the Old Glory Club is to have chapters in all the countries so that if you have to do like a cross-country road trip, you have friends in all 50 states that agree with you, won't rat you out to people, and aren't going to like try and kill you simply because you're a conservative and that you can like more or less couch surf your way to the other side of the country. And that's a very feasible goal, I think. And if it means that things are still going to be rough, at least you have a community. At least you have, dare I say, I don't know, maybe this uh, this new covenant that we've all been adopted into that we can uh, survive in. And so I, that's sort of the good point maybe to wrap this sort of talk up is just that, yeah, there might be people out there that we disagree with. Lord knows that you know there, there have been plenty of Caesars and kings and persecutors in the world that have allowed us to thrive. And uh, if that's the case, then, you know, this sort of pressure cooker that we're in is either going to create a really good dish 
or we're going to just sit out there like ingredients never used and we're going to rot away. Mm. You heard it here first, Chuds. Gunakri is Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mr. Prudentialist, thank you, sir. <laughs> this has been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, uh, Cooper, you're an excellent him. performance artist. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but I appreciate the commitment to the bit. <laughs> I just inhaled some raspberry bubbly, the sponsor of our stream today. <laughs> there you go. Tell our people where uh, they can find uh, you, sir. Well, thank you so much for having me on, uh, Matt and Cooper. It's a <laughs> great pleasure. I love that. Thanks so much. Uh, it's a <laughs> resounding endorsement, your coughs. But uh, you guys can find me over on YouTube, Twitter, Telegram. All of my links can be found at a lovely website called findmyfriends.net slash the Prudentialist. It is like a uh, cancel-proof link tree made by our good friend Charlemagne. And that allows mm. you to find out mm. podcast platforms, uh, Stack. And uh, I'm often a recurring guest on the Orrin McIntyre show. We have a running gag that I am his most restrained extremist. So you can find me over there on the last couple of weeks of his show. But uh, thank you, gentlemen, for, for allowing me to come on and, and ramble and rant. It's been a great time talking to you. And like you said at the beginning, this conversation was a long time coming. Mm, Mr. Frogman, yes, absolutely. thank you. Thank you. It's and been real. We have... Yeah. Some of this, this stuff you're talking about, the old Glory Club, putting together IRL communities and stuff, we've got some plans of our own we're putting together. One of the great things about these sort of networks is that they, you can't have too many of them. There is no, it's not like this is a, a, a product or a, or a service that you have to try to corner the market on. The more little uh, organizations like this that we can develop and actually use to improve our, our, uh, our IRL lives and begin to merge our families together, and, and that sounded worse than I meant for it to, but you know what I mean. The... We're working on some of that ourselves. Roll if tide. you guys want to want to want to participate <laughs> with us in that, um, you can join the Kingpilled uh, Discord server. Uh, go to subscribestar.com slash kingpilled for right now. If you go there and it doesn't work, that means, and you're listening to this in the future, that means go to kingpilled.com. Kingpilled.com is not up yet, but it will be soon. And uh, you can come join us. We've got some actual tangible plans, some specific things that we're working on that we'll make public here in the not too distant future. Uh, we have not yet so decided whether or not it's going to be kingpilled.com or the hyperboreanlodge.com. So if it's not one, try the other. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, we're very, we are very organized in all of this because we are businessmen. Businessmen. Uh, <laughs> so uh, to those of you who are watching live, uh, I have put in the redirect to, for, uh, to you guys can go raid the 2-Bit podcast. He's live right now. Um, they're having a good conversation. So we've got 80 people watching live right now. If we can get all of you guys to all stream your way on over to uh, the 2-Bit Podcast. Uh, just sit here and let the stream expire, and, and it, you should automatically be redirected and just let them know that King Pilled sent you. Uh, that being said, thank you guys for watching. Please uh, subscribe, like the stream, and we will talk to you next time.